Thank you, Alec. Today we begin uh, a new short three-part sermon series that is called The First 2,000 Days. Let me uh, share with you how I arrived at The First 2,000 Days and the title. A few uh, weeks ago, or a few months ago rather, I was invited to uh, speak at a, a regional conference for uh, preschool work and, uh, and the intersection of preschool work and faith. And it was at that conference that I was introduced to this idea of the first 2,000 days of a kid's life. Honestly, I'd never heard talk about that in the way that it was talked about at the conference and a website that I was able to go to later and pull up some information. And what I discovered, and many of you know who work in preschool, and many of you here at Grace do, but many of you know who work in preschool that those first five years, those first 2,000 days of a, ch a child's life are big. They're a big deal. They're a big deal because of what's going on in that kid's brain. There are so many things that happen in a child's brain in those first uh, five years, those first 2,000 days. As a matter of fact, the research shows that 700 new neural connections are formed every single second during that time. So what that means is that the child is interacting and responding to all of the stimuli around them. And as they're interacting and responding to the stimuli, they form these new connections that uh, help inform them of what's going on around them. And then they spend, toward the end of that five years, then they spend time pruning away those connections that are no longer necessary, no longer meaningful, no longer matter. So as I sat there and I listened that day to the person do the presentation on that before I was to get up and speak, I thought about the impact that we as God's people can have. What a significant impact we can have because what the researchers talk about is this serve and return relationship that exists between parents and children, between caregivers and children, between teachers and children during those first 2,000 days. That serving return relationship, how does that work? Well, all of you who have children knows how it works because it doesn't matter how much education or money or whatever you have, when you have children, something happens. What happens? You begin to speak a strange language you yourself don't even understand, right? You've seen this happen. You've seen very distinguished, wonderful, educated parents all of a sudden have a little kid, a little kid in front of them, and they go, oh, blah, 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 blah. And you go, what? That makes no sense it does to the little kid. Like the little kid somehow is communicating back and forth that way, and you begin to talk that way. And so you have these neural connections that are formed. And kids will pronounce things in funny ways, and parents just kind of go with it for a while until, you know, at some point, you know, about eighth grade, you probably should teach a kid how to pronounce that word. So parents will kind of go with it for a little while. We experienced this with Trent. Trent, uh, as, as, a, as a kid, was just very verbal, and, and he still is, uh, talks all the time. But as a kid, he was, and he never could figure out early on how to say the word squirrel or girl. He said squirreler or girler, all right? So, so we were arranging a trip a few years ago when the Dead Sea Scrolls were in uh, Charlotte. We were arranging a trip to Charlotte to see the Dead Sea Scrolls, and Trent was going, and he was most excited about seeing the Dead Sea Scrolls. He was all of three or four. And so... He was pumped about going to see the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we get down there, and I'm carrying him through this, um, you know, to me is a feast for my eyes of these parchments that were discovered in the caves in and, and Qumran, and I'm just looking at that like, wow, blown away, and when Trent finally looks down at me, and he says, Dad, and I said, what? And he said, where are the dead squirrelers? 
I said, what? He said, where are the dead squirrelers? And it dawned on me when I told him we were going to see the Dead Sea Scrolls, he assumed we were going to see dead squirrels. And uh, he was devastated, all right, just absolutely devastated that there were no dead squirrels for him to look at. Uh, Children have this give and take, this serve and return. And so what happens in the early part of their lives is absolutely critical. On the flip side, when negative things happen and abuse happens, it can really uh, hurt the the forming of the architecture of a kid's brain. And so as I sat there and listened to that, and I knew of our needs and our plans here and our heart for children that has existed since we have existed as a church, it was just a natural connection for me between what we're getting ready to do with this building, uh, as the building was already in the design phase at that point, what we're getting ready to do with this building and, and what God wants us to do. You see, last Sunday morning here, uh, between the 9.30 and 11 o'clock service, there were 84 preschoolers here. 84 preschoolers in there. There were some more out here, but there were 84 in there. You must know that in most churches, those volunteers volunteer once a month. But here at Grace, our preschool teachers, we have three rounds of this, 8.30, 9.30, and 11. Every single one of them volunteers 52 weeks a year. 52 weeks a year, they invest in your children so that when you go in there and you see that person, your child sees that person, it's the same person your child will see for as long as they're in the two-year-old group and then the three-year-old group, they'll just see that all year long and it's wonderful consistency. Those volunteers know the importance of these first 2,000 days. Well, why in the world, in light of all of that, would I title a sermon, Bad News for Babies?, All right, because if you look at the sermon, we typically don't want to give babies bad news, but there is some bad good news for babies. What is it? Any of you who've ever had a child knows you don't have to teach the child to be bad, right? It just comes natural. Uh, Some happen earlier than others, but it just comes natural. Kids are born with the ability to be bad. They are born with the ability to mix things up. And and the writer Asaph of Psalm 78, uh, the Elic read, said in verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. What is he talking about here? The word parable in this context, and especially in the Old Testament, uh, literally means a riddle. It means a riddle. And what the author is saying is there's some riddle that he's got to unfold here and lay out for those who will be reading and later singing this psalm. What is that riddle? Well, we'll discover that riddle uh, will unfold as we delve into this psalm, but the psalm itself unfolds this riddle. And that parable or that riddle came to become, uh, came to be the property of Israel. It it came to be their slogan, in a sense, uh, their property, and we'll see it unfold. Uh, Let's look at verses 9 through 11 uh, because they'll give us some insight into how the riddle unfolds. Verse 9 says, the Ephraimites armed with the bow turned back on the day of battle. Now, the Ephraimites is just another word to say Israelites, so don't let that throw you. So we might say the Israelites armed with the bow turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant but refused to walk according to his law. 
And then there's a key phrase, they forgot his works. And the wonders that he had shown them. Go to verse 40 of Psalm 78, and we'll discover another clue to whatever this riddle is. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness, God, Israel, rebelling against God in the wilderness, and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not, what? Remember his power. On the day when he redeemed them from the foe. There is a common theme unfolding here, and that is the forgetfulness of Israel. This psalm is written for children and their children and their children yet unborn so that people will not forget. The danger is that you and I could forget. We could forget what? Well, let's see what they forgot, and that may give us insight into what you and I are in danger of forgetting. Uh, They forgot God's redemption. They forgot God's redemption. Look at verse 12. In the sight of their fathers... He, God, performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. They forgot God's redemption. What was his redemption for them? Israel was stuck in Egypt as slaves. It was the worst time in the history of that people. They're slaves in Egypt. God sends Moses over to deliver them out. And when God sends Moses to deliver them out, he performs these amazing plagues that get their attention. Pharaoh's, that is. And they get Pharaoh's attention, and Pharaoh says the people can go, and the people head out. You know the story. The people head out, but they've got the Red Sea to cross. That is a significant problem. They get to the Red Sea. The army of Pharaoh is marching in. There is fear that overtakes them. They wonder what's going to happen when God looks at Moses and says, Moses, touch that sea with the rod that is in your hand. Moses does. The sea parts. God makes this immediate aquarium. I mean, fantastic. Ripley's can't touch this thing. The Atlanta Aquarium is no comparison to this. The Red Sea forms two walls, and the mighty uh, uh, group of Israelites walk across on dry land. Could you imagine the kids looking at the fish just swimming, bam, into the wall of water? And they go across the Red Sea on dry land, get to the other side. Uh, Pharaoh's still marching in, and Pharaoh and his army get in the middle of the Red Sea. God says the word, the waters overtake them. How could you forget that? How in the world could you forget that? They did. That's what Asaph says. God's people forgot that. Now, I'm going to guess that nobody in this room has been through a quickly God-made aquarium uh, on the way to deliverance from whatever it is you needed deliverance from. But if you're here and you once were lost, but now you found that you're found, God redeemed you. 
Here's my point. If Israel could forget the Red Sea experience, you and I are in danger of forgetting what God has done in our lives. Wendy and Trent and I, a few years ago, had, uh, were, we were at the beach, and there was a wedding. And we had trekked down to do the wedding uh, on the coast of North Carolina. And as we were there at the beach to do the wedding, we were just out on the beach that morning uh, when this guy started to drown. He was in danger in the water, in the current. And he began to yell, and he began to wave. And as he began to yell and wave, lifeguards saw him, and they went running into the water, and they literally, in front of our eyes, saved his life. They rescued him and saved his life right there in front of our eyes. And then he did the most interesting thing that I've never forgotten. Once he was pulled to safety, he stood up and he walked in the opposite direction of those lifeguards never saying a word to them. It was unbelievable to me. that They just saved your life. Yet he was so embarrassed that his embarrassment caused him to immediately forget his near death. What I want to say to you this morning is what you remember will determine what you will do. If the guy had remembered immediately his death, what would he have done? He simply would have thanked them. He would have said thank you to those who rescued him. What you remember will determine what you will do. Secondly, they forgot God's provision. Look at verse 15. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. What was this all about? They get across the Dead Sea, or or the Red Sea, and they're across the Red Sea, and as they get across the Red Sea, they find themselves in the wilderness with no food and no water, and it's hot, and they're hungry, and they're thirsty. What does God do? He provides water from a rock. He says, Moses, I want you to simply strike the rock, and water will come forth from that rock. God provides exactly what they need, and they forgot God's provision. Not only did they forget God's redemption, they forgot his provision. They forgot what he had done for them. Look at verse 54 and verse 55 of Psalm 78. Verse 54, and he, God, brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. God drove out nations. They forgot his provision. As I was preparing this week, I remembered when somebody had provided for me in a big way. I grew up so poor. And so as a, as a high school kid, I started, well, as a junior high kid, seventh grade, I started saving money for college. As a seventh grader, no lie. Started saving money, went to the bank, BB&T and Old Fort, opened my bank account, and started saving money as a seventh grader, and saved and saved and saved. I mowed yards, I worked for my dad, who did rock masonry, I did, uh, I worked at Frisbee's in Old Fort, I worked at Stuckey's on the interstate, whatever it took, I worked and worked and worked, and saved literally thousands of dollars so that I could go to college. 
I was two years in at Wofford College in Spartanburg, having gotten a, uh, an academic scholarship, but Wofford every year raised the tuition by $1,000 when I was there. And I'm two years in when they got the letter again and they had raised tuition again. And when I got that, I thought, there's no way I can come back. I simply can't afford it. My parents can't afford to pay any of my school. I can't come back. So I had a work-study job, and I told the guy in the office where I worked, he was a VP, and I said, listen, I, I'm, I won't be back. I am applying to Appalachian State. It's much cheaper. I can go there. That's what i got to do. He said, hold off. Hold off on that. I want you to meet somebody. So it was, uh, it was uh, a meeting that was arranged for me on campus. This, this gentleman, he was a Wofford grad. He uh, <clears throat> hadn't been graduated long from Wofford, but obviously he was enormously successful. And so I remember walking into uh, his office, or walking into the office of the president, and walking right by this gentleman's car, uh, and I thought it was nice. It was crazy nice, all right? So after I coveted and confessed, uh, I was driving a 1979 Plymouth Horizon, two four-door hatchback, gray on gray, all right? So anything was nice. But at any rate, so I'm walking buy this car, and I go in, and I sit down with this guy for about 45 minutes, and he asked me question after question after question, and it was to determine uh, if he would help me stay at Wofford. And I loved my experience in college. One of the best times of my life was college for me. And so uh, I answered all his questions, and then about a week later, I received either a letter or a call, I can't remember, and it was from this guy. His name is Boyd Hip. And it was from this guy. And he said, uh, the letter said, uh, you are uh, provided enough scholarship for you to be able to come uh, back to Wofford this next year and then your senior year. Wow. I was blown away. I was absolutely thrilled. I had good grades and I had done all that stuff, but just needed the money. So as I'm talking about how we can forget God's provision, I thought, I need to write this guy. So I go online. I track him down, internet, right? I track him down online. I send him an email this week just thanking him, telling him where I am, what I'm doing, and, and, and the joy I have in serving God in ministry. I don't know the guy's faith or anything like that. I send him an email. And within uh, about 10 minutes, maybe 15, here's what I got back from him. It says, Jerry, I've been blessed with many thank you notes from former students over the years, but none that touched me like yours. Thank you for making the effort to write. Needless to say, I'm delighted to have assisted in some small way you on your life's journey. I am also pleased to learn you are answering God's call and wish you continued success in that regard. Every blessing to you and yours. Isn't that cool? Here's a guy, this is, you know, I'm an old man. So this was a long time ago. Uh, 1988 that I had that meeting with him. And, and after all those years, it still blesses him to hear the word, thank you. I thanked him immediately when I received it, but years later, it blesses him that I do what? Remember, let me ask you a question. What has God done for you lately? What has he done? What has God done for you this week? Just this week. All right, so we're, we're going to start basic, all right? Raise your hand if you're breathing. All right, every, every hand went up except the people who were sleeping. So we're good. All right, so who gave you that breath? All right, let's try that again. Who gave you that breath? James says every good thing given and every perfect gift comes from above. 
they forgot God's provision. Oh, could we not make a long list? Could we not list one thing after another after another that he has done for us? Scripture says, in all things give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. But folks come to me, as they often do, and say, Jerry, I'm trying to figure out God's will for my life. I encourage them to start out with the plain and obvious will. And what is the plain and obvious will of God? In all things give thanks. That's a beginning point. That's a beginning point. They forgot God's provision. What you remember will determine what you will do. What you remember will determine what you will do. Number three, they forgot God's judgment. They forgot God's judgment. Look at verse 30. But before they had satisfied their craving, their craving for what? Food and water. They were eating quail and drinking water that God had provided. Before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. Verse 32 ought to catch every one of our attention. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Wow. In spite of all this, I would say to some of you who sit here this morning and you're in sin, living in sin, you have no intention of quitting it. You, you don't. You are, you're fine to continue in your sin. What will it take for you to stop? In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe, so he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. God judged them. 56 through 64 gives us the same thing. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously, provoked him to anger, verse uh, 58. In verse 59, God heard and was full of wrath. In verse 60, he forsook his dwelling, verse 61, and delivered his power to captivity, uh, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. The priest fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. What you remember will determine what you will do. Say, so, Jerry, how do you know? We all live by this rule. Several state troopers who come here to church, and here's the deal. You're headed somewhere. You're late. And when you're late, you're, you're, your foot is on which pedal? The one on the right, Okay. It's on the gas pedal. So you're trucking down the road. You are late. And you look up in the mirror and you see lights don't even have to be on, right? Just the car. Something about that gray, blackish car with blue lights on it. And what do you immediately do? Oh, you hit the brake, right? You hit the brake. Some of you try not to be so obvious, so you kind of just slow down. You don't want him to realize you realize how fast you were going. So you just kind of slow down. Why do you do that? Because you remember the state trooper's judgment. That's why. What is the state trooper's judgment? Well, one time you were going fast, and you didn't see him soon enough. He saw you before you saw him. He pulled you over. He gave you a ticket. Your insurance went up. If you were a kid, your parents killed you. If you weren't, 
your wife or your husband did, all right? So there are all these ramifications. You remember the judgment of the state trooper. And when you remember the judgment of the state trooper, you hit the brakes. It is altogether important that we remember the judgment of God. God hates sin. He despises it. And he judges it. And so when we're tempted to sin, we ought to hit the brake because remember, uh, there's a God who hates sin. What you remember will determine what you will do. What you remember will determine what you will do. They forgot God's judgment, but finally and sadly, they forgot God's love. They forgot his love. Look at verse 34. When he killed them, this is God in his wrath. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. And you read that and go, oh, good job. All right, good job. Turning from sin, turning to God. They remembered. Oh, great word. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But look at verse 36. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. Uh, They were... They were not faithful to his covenant. It was a temporary remembering. It was just this this thought that flew through their head but didn't make it to their hearts. Verse 38. If you're writing your Bibles, you should underline the first two words of verse 38. In the ESV, it says, yet he, wow, God of these people, yet he being compassionate. Did what? Atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger, what? Often. And did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. What did God do in his love for them? Here is the secret. Here's the riddle solved. He atoned. That word atonement, we'll just simplify here, means at, put a space, one, put a space, meant. At one meant to make one with. Atonement, the word literally means to cover. So it's got the specific definition of covering. It's what Anna's saying about earlier that, oh, the blood of Jesus covers me. That's atonement. And the result of the covering is at one mint. The word has both the meaning and the result built into it. Beautiful word in theology, at one mint. How did God do that? By sending his only son Jesus Christ, who had never committed any sin. He could never committed any sin. He had never done anything wrong. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, died for every sin you have ever committed. For every time Israel gave God lip service, Jesus died. For every sin, every time they went back and forth and back and forth, and every time you've done the same thing, Jesus died for that. 
so that you being far away might be brought near by the blood of Christ. Here is the slogan, all right? Don't miss this. Here is the one-liner. Your sin is so great, God had to die for you. This is the bad news for babies part of the sermon. Your sin is so great, God had to die for you. Jesus' love is so great, he was glad to die for you. That's what we live by as a church. That's the riddle. The greatness of man's sin up against the greatness of the love of Christ. That's the riddle of Psalm 78. That's the riddle of the entire Bible. That's the gospel. Your sin is so great, God had to die for you. His love is so great, he was glad to die for you. God loves you. They forgot that. If we ever forget this, listen, I'm serious. That's the day we need to close the doors and quit all the work we're doing because we've lost our message. That's what we own as a church. What you remember will will determine what you do. That's why we're building this building. That's why we do what we do with all these preschoolers. That's why we give kids top priority in our budget and in our funding at this church. So, dear, what should I do? Number one, if you are in this place without Christ, you need to come to him this morning. Give your life to him, number two. Number two, teach your children. Why? Well, Alec Red says this is the result. Verses five and six say, teach your kids. Verse seven says, why? So they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Teach your children, why? So they can set their hope in God, not forget the works of God, and keep his commandments. That should be your goal as a parent. Not that your kid play ball somewhere. No, that he sets his hope in God, doesn't forget the works of God, and keep his commandments. Playing ball somewhere is just like icing on the cake. Not that she should be get the, the best academic scholarship somewhere, and that's fine and wonderful and good, but, but this ought to be your goal, so that she should set her hope in God, not forget his works, but keep his commandments. Teach your children. Number three, teach other children. If you sit here this morning and you don't serve at Grace, we're having to add four new teachers to our preschool department because kids are everywhere. We're getting ready to put up warning signs on water fountains. That was pitiful. All right, so nobody got that. Everybody's getting pregnant. That's what I'm saying. Babies are everywhere. So we've got to add people to the preschool. And if you don't serve, you guys are, wow, that was horrible. Uh, On my part, I take all that. But, uh, gee. So if you don't serve in preschool, sign up. 
we could use gifted, wonderful people. Now, you're signing up for a lot. It's 52 weeks a year. Just warn you, we're asking tremendous, tremendous amount of time from you and commitment. And then, finally, how can you give to build this building? What can you do? Some of you are so wonderfully blessed financially, this is the time to step up big. Others of you can give something every single week. Every single week, God will bless you to give. And so, over the next couple weeks, pray about that. Take that card you received and say, okay, based on my prayer, this is what I know God wants me to do. And give. Let's bow our heads. So our praise team comes. I want to give you the opportunity to do a couple of things this morning publicly. One is, uh, God may be leading you to join the church, and several people have in the past few weeks. And, and so uh, God may be leading you to do that, and we welcome you. Uh, most importantly, you may have walked in here apart from Christ, and you need to pray right now and say, Jesus, I, I need to be forgiven. The question is not one of church membership for you. It's not a question of, of religious uh, religiosity. It's a question of relationship. Do you personally know Christ? Are you willing to trust him with your life this morning? I'm not asking you if you're willing to do better this week. I'm asking, are you willing to surrender, to give up? And say, okay, God, I need a God who who tells me that my sin is so bad that he has to die for me and that I am so loved, he is glad to die for me. I need Jesus Christ. And today I turn from my sin and turn to Christ as my Savior. Father, do your work your way in this place. God, we so want your will to be done. May we never forget the riddle, the saying. May we champion the gospel. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.